It is that time of year again here at the Leukemia Foundation to talk about the world's greatest shave. The world's greatest shave is one of the country's longest running and most iconic fundraising campaigns, bringing Australians together to champion a good cause for over 25 years. Every year, each March, a community of trailblazers step up to shave, cut or colour their hair, all in the name of funding game-changing blood cancer support and research. Every dollar you will raise will help keep families together when they need it the most. We'll provide practical and emotional support services to patients and their families. We'll help fund cutting-edge research and campaign for change for those affected. We'll help families meet basic costs like putting food on the table, getting to hospital or paying bills. You will join a community of trailblazers determined to shape a brighter future for blood cancer patients and their families. A community that champions change, that doesn't take no for an answer. So why don't you sign up to the Leukemia Foundation's World's Greatest Shave and shave, cut or colour your hair in support of Australians facing blood cancer. Every dollar you will raise will help provide support services to patients and families and keep them together. Hi, and welcome to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer. My name is Kate Arkadiff, and my role at the Leukemia Foundation is a blood cancer support coordinator. We provide emotional and practical support to people living with blood cancer and their loved ones. Our support is offered throughout the many different stages of a blood cancer journey. While listening to this podcast, we will share the stories of people we have connected with who have faced blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. The Leukemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share the real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek the advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone, or even if you would like more information on our services or on today's episode, please feel free to contact 1800 620 420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. The story you're about to hear today is of a blood cancer journey from the perspective of a mother and psychologist, Sandra Evans. It was about 14 years ago and Sandra was living in the beautiful far north coast of New South Wales when blood cancer first came into her life. She lived with her husband, Randall, and two girls, Talia, who was four at the time, and Lauren, who was just 14 months old. 
It was a busy time in Sandra and Randall's life. They were both working and looking after their two small girls. They had always been a very healthy family, only ever having spent a night in hospital when Sandra gave birth. Then their world was turned upside down when they were delivered the news that their little girl Talia had leukaemia. Fourteen years later, Mary Ann Scopara spoke to Sandra about how her family navigated their way through a blood cancer diagnosis. So welcome, Sandra, to the podcast series. Thank you, Mary Ann. Thank you for having me. So what was happening with Talia that, you know, brought your attention to that she needed to seek some medical care? Um, Yeah, and initially uh, there was, I, I, I remember a, a daycare worker, she was in, in care because I was working, and a daycare worker saying to me, I think Talia, is, is something wrong with Talia? Like she just seems a bit out of sorts and um, a bit tired and uh, kind of fatigued, which was kind of outstanding because Talia was like a pocket rocket and never still um, and constantly kind of running and giggling and laughing. And I remember coming into the daycare centre and looking at her and she was kind of just sitting on the grass slumped over um, looking, you know, fairly tired. And I, I just thought to myself, oh, you know, we're a busy family. She's in care. You know, maybe she just needs a couple of days off. So it kind of started from that point. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, I, I think about things like she was kind of off her food but you know what you do as a mother of a four-year-old as you say you know lots of kids are picky so it doesn't picky eaters it kind of raise that red flag um she was probably a little bit more moody a little bit kind of um emotional but again at four you know it's something that you kind of fit in the growing thing yeah. (laughs) yeah um and then I think the next step for us was that she developed a a lump under her eye um, and it was kind of like a little bit like the size of a pea um, and mm. I took her to a GP and they said, oh, I think it's just um, an allergy that, you know, I think her eye, you know, has an allergy and within about a week that pea had grown to kind of halfway along her eye, kind of more like a bean shaped and I took her back to a different GP and from there things happened quite quickly in terms of we've got a referral locally to a, I can't remember the name of the specialist now, but... Um, a dermatologist or... An eye no. specialist. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> and, yeah, and they looked at that and said, oh, you, you'll need to go to Brisbane um, tomorrow. <laughs> And oh, um, wow. that was kind of our first, oh, that, that's, that's rather quick. Um, and we were sent to the eye hospital in Brisbane um, where they, they did some scans, a CT scan, and um, that was kind of our, our then introduction to, to, to all things medical. And when they did the scan, they, they could clearly see that there was a tumour um, underneath the underneath her eye and their first kind of reaction was to re- remove that tumour. Um, and uh, when they did, they, they felt that it was a secondary um, tumour and that there may have been other kind of tumours in her abdomen or her chest. And so 
Um, then we started this process. She had eye surgery um, and this process of trying to look for other tumours. Um, and it wasn't until um, we got a phone call from Royal Children's Hospital, um, you know, several days afterwards that somebody actually looked at her blood uh, and oh. realised that that wasn't a tumour. It was actually a pooling of leukaemia cells underneath her eye. So I think our pathway to diagnosis was somewhat different to a, a lot of children with, with leukaemia because normally it's picked up from, you know, a urinary tract infection or, um, mm. you know, bruising or, or pain walking. and The normal signs and, and symptoms, yes. Somebody does a blood test, but for some reason we went through <laughs> that whole process without somebody oh. kind of doing a blood test, so... Wow, that is that would have shocked. Now, now, Sandra, where were you living at the time? You mentioned so, that you travelled to Brisbane. Yeah, so we live about two hours south of Brisbane, um, in in the northern rivers of New South Wales. So, um, we yeah, we had to. There, all, all treatment for cancer, for mostly for the people in our region is either you make a decision to go to Sydney, or or you go to Brisbane. So. Um, we we went to Brisbane. That that's where our the first bunch of referrals were. So we we decided that we would go that way. Um, you yeah. mentioned Sandra that you you know that Talia was only four at the time, and you had your other little one was only eighteen months. So did you travel alone with Talia to Brisbane, or how did you manage that time as a family? Yeah, so we were lucky, very, very lucky that we, I had my mum and dad living locally um, in the Northern Rivers and they um, just started to care for little Lauren. Um, so we went up, just Randall and I, with her for that first um, initial kind of testing and, and the eye surgery. And then I, I remember that we came back, we, we had the eye surgery um, and they released us from hospital and we came home. Um, and we'd been home for maybe, uh, you know, five or six hours and we got this phone call from Royal Brisbane um, and it was uh, the oncologist that dealt with Talia all of the way through um, and she, she asked me this range of questions and I still remember the questions because I was in such a high level of denial about the fact that this could be cancer that she said things like oh so you know has she she got a lot of bruises on her legs and you know I'm sitting there on the phone looking at Talia's legs and going oh my goodness I can't believe I haven't seen you know those mm. bruises before but again in the world of normal childhood you go well they have a lot of bruises yes and she's falling she fell off a bike last week like you know that Mm. and I and I said to her but you know she's four like she falls over all the time and 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 this doctor went yes yes and what about you know is she off her food you you know and I went yes but she's four and she's just a picky eater and she's yes yes um and so there were these just this whole range of questions where I, I, you know, by the end of the conversation, kind of couldn't deny that we, we you know, she said to me, I think, we, you know, we've got some initial results back and I, I think your child has leukaemia. Um, and I said, no, no, it, it, it couldn't be. Like she's just, she's just tired. She's just, uh, you know, she's just yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And she said, you will need to hang up and repack your bags and you need to turn around and come back to Brisbane now. And I said, but we've just driven back. Like we're we're two hours Mm -hmm. away. And she said, I don't want to scare you, but she said, 
you know, her 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 body and her her marrow and her bones are packed with with leukemia cells. She's probably had this for you know six to eight to twelve weeks. If she becomes unwell, your local hospital will not be able to provide the treatment that she needs. You need to turn around now. And that was that. I think that that moment where wow. Oh, okay. Now it's really real. Mm, that would have been really difficult words to hear and then have to relay to Randall. Yes. Because yeah. you would have had to have told him what you just heard. Yes. And, you know, and where was Talia when you were sharing this information? Yeah, it was kind of, you know, six or seven o'clock that night. So she was exhausted she was- and, yeah, asleep. So, um, oh, that was a blessing. That was a blessing. So, yeah, we mm. we didn't. Um, and I actually, in looking back, I, you know, don't don't remember kind of how we explained that to her, um, and, you know, and how we packed those bags and kind of got back in the car and uh, drove and back headed to back Brisbane. to Brisbane. Yeah. You know, I often sit in awe at, um, you know, of of hearing these stories shared because the emotion is so raw, yet what I see is such strength, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of patients who share with me um, how they process things as well as carers, how they process things. And, you know, that, that important message of, you're stronger than you think you are. Yes. And you just you just rise to the occasion and do what you need to do. Probably way m- more vulnerable than I thought I was but way stronger, you know, than yeah. I thought I was. And I think too with childhood cancer, it's um, there's that great kind of parental protection kind of mode that you go into where you know, you know, how disastrous this situation is but how important it is that you – uh, have a ha, have a, a sense of calm in order mm. that that horrible kind of terror is not you know passed on to your child portrayed. is not portrayed that, to your child. So mm. it is, um, it's like a lion with a cub. Yes. Of all things, I am the yes. protector. Yes, come into That's the it. fold. Yeah. So when 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 we reached out to you, you know, with this podcast series, I know you would have given some thought to what you were hoping to share. You've been a tremendous connection for us as an organisation, writing, being author and publishing that book, Eight Seasons, where you share your story about Talia and your family's journey with blood cancer. Is that something that you want to spend time sharing here or um, what what aspect of that part of, because it's been a while now, uh, you mentioned that uh, Talia was six, four. She was four when she was diagnosed and she's now 18. But, you know, I, I do remember the both of you having been here that many years ago and the vulnerable you. And, um, you know, would you like to share with the listeners yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, my book really started as a bit of a journal um, and that mm-hmm. was um, a way of me kind of channeling some of the trauma um, and some of the day-to-day kind of experiences that happened to us as a family, you know, during Talia's treatment. Um, I, I never quite believed that it would 
you know, end up as a book um, or have perhaps such relevance to the cancer community, you, you know, that it has. But I had this really kind of driving need to record our journey because I felt that it was such a significant one um, and one that I wanted Tali to be able to look back of, you know, back on and remember her struggles but also, more importantly, as a record of her strength. Um, yeah. You know, th- there was that kind of side of it and, and I also wanted the book to give some kind of insight into the daily events that take place when a child does have cancer um, mm. because I think that that, that there's a, a huge sense of normalising a very abnormal kind of event um, and, and mm. th- th- there's a great power in that um, for people going through that journey, journey to know that there are you know, other people that experience the same thing and that, you know, intense reactions are actually in the realm of normal. Um, yeah, that's such an important message. Yes. Because, uh, you know, some people do feel that sense of loss of control or that overwhelmed sense of emotion where they feel as if they can't face another day at yeah. varying times. Yeah, definitely. And I- the impact on relationships too. Oh, absolutely, and that was huge. I think one of the driver drivers too you know aside from all of those things that I've mentioned is um it there was almost a straw actually that <laughs> pushed me more to you know to do a little bit more with this book and it was a particular medication called dexamethasone um oh. which is the, <laughs> the high dose steroid medication which yeah it, it had very ghastly side effects for, for Talia and um made kind of adjustment to to returning to home quite difficult um, because Mm. it it was very kind of personality changing for Talia and she became quite physically aggressive, very teary um, and her behaviour kind of became very difficult to manage which is very was very unlike her you know as a child Mm. Um, and uh, you know I'm kind of a great one for reading um, and finding out how things work and then I tend to cope a little bit better. So um, I, I remember kind of reaching out and, and contacting the Leukaemia Foundation at that point and saying, you know, is there something I can read a- around this medication because mm-hmm. this is really hard, like we're, we're, we're really struggling. Um, and fortunately I was I was put in contact with an article written by a lady called Pam McGrath um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a fantastic <laughs> article about the side effects of DEX in children, and I loved the title. It was called "Enough Is Enough," and I just thought, yes, this is this is you know really what I need to read. Um, and so subsequently, I contacted Pam, and we had some great conversations. And she was kind of this lifeboat for me, you know, in that moment as one individual that could really understand. Um, you know, what we were experiencing. And one of the most powerful things for me that she did was normalise the emotional impact that drug had on Talia. Um, and she understood that me as a parent, that how exhausted and traumatised I was after coping with the intensity of that treatment in Brisbane for six months, you know, and then coming home. And she just had this beautiful way of putting that into context for me and normalising this, you know, huge impact that this journey kind of had on on all of us um but also giving you that permission and recognizing that you too are exhausted and you know you're having to face then with the somewhat excitement about finishing treatment and returning home 
but it's tainted because ongoing treatment is presenting things that you weren't expecting, you know, and having to manage that when you want to just down tools and fall in an emotional heap. (laughs) Yes, 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 Mm. definitely. It's, um, you know, that book, you know, and describing kind of the, the impacts of, of cancer treatment in in all its aspects you know its effect on relationships its effect on financial you know situations Mm. with families um it you know I I wanted this book to be that thing that people could use I guess as a bit of um to know that they're not alone you know to to read this and go okay someone else has kind of walked this pathway um and they've experienced all of this stuff so maybe so so can I you know and I can we we can get through this because it's drawing on others strengths yes yeah yeah yes yeah and you know Sandra that's perfectly said because I I've, I've read that book and this is what the podcast is hoping to offer as well you know no one can create the answers for your own personal journey but sometimes in the moment of listening there is this feeling of oh I don't feel so alone yeah. or there's a validation for even just the recognition of oh when this happened I felt like this or this is what that person did and therefore, oh, you know, it's just that that feeling of like you've just said, being so alone. Yeah, it's a little bit about kind of almost recognising that you do have inner strengths and you've got great inner strengths um, and finding Mm -hmm. hope at, 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 you know, when that light at the end of the tunnel is quite dim. Um, Mm. I think too, you know, one of the, beautiful things that I've been able to do with the foundation is kind of travel around and, and speak at a number of different conferences and and, and things and one of one of the, my most favorite ones was a um, a conference in South Australia which was about life after diagnosis um, mm. and we had this beautiful panel of um, researchers and you know medical kind of personnel um, and, and myself and a, and a couple of other people who had also adults who had also had um, cancer and, and, and the leukemias themselves. And um, I, I stood up and I spoke about this returning home and, and actually how, how fraught it was with anxiety and, you know, difficulty. Um, and I, and I kind of laid it all out and, you know, said yes. there were, you know, very odd behaviours from me, you know, in terms of anxiety kind of behaviours around the protection of, of my children. Um, and it was, it was a reasonably difficult kind of um, conference to be part of because there, there was such a personal kind of element to the disclosure, yeah, of, you know, some of these things. But the most beautiful thing kind of happened at the end where one a mother came up to me and she said, just simply she had tears in her eyes and she just said simply you what your words and your experience have actually changed my life because I thought I was going crazy and now I realize I'm not and that's all she needed Uh, to say to me and and she kind of walked away again and and you just think you know that's that's the beauty of the power of storytelling you know mm, it's really absolutely there's a healing the value of story power of storytelling which is where you connect 
um, and, and you really um, realise that what you're going through is normal. Like, you know, the, these situations that we experience in, in, in the journey of cancer, there are so many abnormal kind of events that happen um, and, and often then we think our reactions to those are also abnormal, but in fact they're very normal. Um, and just to, you know, to, to hear and share, you, you know, other people's reactions and their grief, um, you, you know, helps I think process your own experience you know, of that journey um, and, and helps, you know, realise that that there is certainly some normal about the difficulties. And, Sandra, when you were saying, so your focus for this season is the returning home for you, what did you put into your day to help you cope and deal with, you know, the, the that adjustment of, you know, no longer being close to the treatment centre um, you know, you mentioned or you touched on that um, um, you, you were very protective of your two girls. So I would imagine, um, especially if you've had an experience, it's quite normal for people to say, oh, you know, if you get a cold or a sniffle, is it the fear of those sorts of things? What helped you in that time? I think I was probably quite literally beside myself with fear when we came home yeah. because, you know, that the, the the children's hospital provides this kind of unusual protective bubble uh, when you're in it where you have a sense of security of, you know, if anything does go wrong, there's, there's help right there. Um, and and that kind of plays out in, in that six months that you're there repeatedly, you know, where, you know, there's been multiple visits to ICU and, um, you know, all sorts of things go wrong. But help is, is is right there with this beautiful specialist team that you know you can access um, and stepping away from that was almost like cu cutting the umbilical cord <laughs> you know in, in some sense um, uh, which is intensely frightening and particularly coming back to a regional centre where mm. there, you, you know I learned very quickly there isn't the expertise um, and so there was this kind of great fear that if something really, you know, serious happened, I would have to get her to the Gold Coast or I would have to get her to Brisbane, um, mm. you know, because uh, staff just don't have the specialist training that, that they do in kind of metropolitan hospitals. So um, there were, you know, in terms of I guess what we did, um, I, I very early forged a really... Um, and long, and I can say long relationship now because it has been a long relationship with a GP who I felt really got it. Um, and I went through a number to get to him, but <laughs> we, we, we That's did. That's good advice, though. Yes. That's good. He, yes, um, yes he, he really understood, I think, my anxiety and my trauma as a parent and then le learned, I guess, a when when he was working with me that he really needed to listen to me you know so mm. as a mum who's just experienced kind of six months of intense um you know chemotherapy for her child I had all the lingo I had you know the yes. of blood tests I had all of that and what I found is when we came home that a lot of GPs would say Tali's just over medicalized you don't need an antibiotic it's just a cold and so I just would go you know, I would step outside sometimes GP appointments and call her paediatrician in Lismore and say, they just said this. And he said, 
he would say, just go to the chemist. I will fax you through a script of an antibiotic. Just fill it and give it to her because they're not understanding, you know, that. Uh, that immune. 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 Lack of uh, immunity that she immunity. had. Yeah, so when I, I kind of found this GP, we, we, you know, and Talia, you know, developed this really sound kind of solid relationship where, you know, if he was, if he thought I was being a little bit overprotective, he would actually pick up the phone and he would call our oncologist in, in Brisbane and say, what do you think about this? And, and Oh, which gives you a sense fight. of peace. So, so happy to find him. The other thing that I did to cope in this kind of situation was we were so lucky to have in, in Lismore, which I'm sure many regional areas just won't have, is but we had an ex-children's um, hospital oncology male nurse um, in our oh, local yeah. hospital. And so we... Um, you know, we, we used to try and do the blood test with the finger prick in the in the um, pathology, and that just was not going well. Um, no, Talia was not coping, and and we we ended up finding this uh, nurse, and we we would go to, and we again developed this really kind of bonded relationship where we would go and do all of her um, port needling and you know her her chemotherapy or, or what we could do um, at home in Lismore with that with that particular staff member and those two were um, really integral to you know us me feeling comfortable enough you know to be so far away from the hospital yes so developing relationships was a key thing for you to feel a sense of comfort at home moving forward post did you do anything additional Sandra like did you change your diet or what did you do as a family to keep yourself selves you know cocooned or protected getting stronger yeah I think we we probably did and I I did go through a period of time where we ate absolutely everything organically and we had no products in the house that had you know any kind of chemicals or artificial anything um I had her on an enormous regime of um uh, alternate kind of vitamins and you you know all all Mm. that stuff to to just do the absolute best for her to you know try and recover um, some of her, you know, natural immunity and 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 health, um, but I think there there was a great sense of me wanting to also provide her in equal measure a normal childhood, and so as mm. much as I wanted to prevent her from going to school <laughs> and being yeah. around a lot of germs and things that I I simply felt that she wouldn't cope with I also didn't want her to have an absence of that so she you know by the time we got back home she was due to go to kindergarten Um, Mm -hmm. and that was a a huge kind of step for us in in letting her kind of go and do that and putting Mm -hmm. you know having great relationships with the school and putting um, you know good action plans around, you know, if she was ever unwell and, you know, how we would manage, you know, I can remember doing things like getting the camp quality puppets to come to the school to explain how to port a cath in her chest and why she was bald and, you know, all of that Mm. stuff. So I I desperately did want her to have that, you know, as much kind of normal childhood um, as she could because she just experienced, you know, a horribly, you know, 
not normal um, existence in hospital for 12 months, uh, for six yeah. months. Yeah, for six months. And, you know, the, the, the treatments and the testings that children have to go through during that leukaemia period are very traumatic for a mother to watch, especially for a child so young because they look to mums for protection. So a very difficult time for you and, and Randall um, during that time. Yeah, and I think that one of the later chapters, I went back and wrote two, two additional chapters to my book, um, and one of those chapters actually talks about us as parents being the silent patients. Um, and, and it talks very much about that accumulation of, of, of almost kind of vicarious trauma that, that parents experience mm-hmm. watching, you know, their children go through very invasive procedures um, and kind of life-threatening, you know, medications. Um, mm. And, you know, I talk very much openly about how I felt that probably what happened when we came home is that was this beautiful period of time where everything was rosy and, you know, we didn't have to be in the hospital and we we got to enjoy being a family again. And then what I think happened to me is gradually, gradually um, that trauma started to bubble Mm. back to the surface. So I I became out of survival mode and then, then, you know, several months later, um, I kind of literally fell apart in terms of mm. the processing of that trauma and um, realising that I was doing some things that were, you know, quite trauma-based. I, I was experiencing kind of, uh, you know, flashbacks of, of distressing thoughts, you know, around mm. ICU and procedures um, and I was desperately trying to put a lid on those and, and kind of keep mm. that kind of back down. Um, but it resulted in me really becoming highly, highly anxious. Um, mm. And it started to affect my work and it started to affect, you know, my relationships. Um, and I realised that, that there needed to be a point where I actually uh, acknowledged that and got some support for it, which I which I did do, um, unfortunately, you know. Psychologists can't be their own psychologists is what I learned (laughs) in that process. Yes. And that would have been hard, Sandra, because I guess in your position too as a psychologist, you're aware of what you need to challenge yourself with. However, you know, you're also aware of what you're really feeling and that's, you know, that's that's a hard hard place to be. (laughs) It is a hard place and I think, you know, I can't speak for all psychologists or, or, or all therapists, but I think there's there's something that happens to us where we kind of go, I don't need a psychologist. I am a psychologist. I know what yes. all of the symptoms are. Um, you know, I, I can recite the diagnostic criteria backwards, but I could not see the, the wood for the trees because I was so far in that um, that it took me to kind of step back from myself I couldn't continue to listen to kind of my own internal dialogue <laughs> and, and treat myself, and that really wasn't working. <laughs> um, so I had to kind of, you know, seek some external support for that, which was probably literally one of the best things that I, I did um, in terms of then finding um, ways again to understand really um, 
that this may be, you know, in some senses should be expected in terms of, you know, what we experience as parents um, and that a lot of my um, symptoms were in fact quite normal for mm. the experience that, that we have as parents, you know, with children that go through cancer treatment. Yeah, absolutely. So that would be one of your golden nuggets is to actually seek some, you know, seek some professional guidance because it doesn't mean that you're weak. It doesn't mean that you're not coping. It's actually an opportunity that can help guide you. Yeah. And give you and recognize the strength within. Yeah, I would say do not suffer in silence. You know, if, if yeah. you feel that there's a level of craziness going on, um, yeah. it definitely does feel like that and you can feel convinced that surely no one else, you know, is, is experiencing that, um, that you can be sure that they are. <laughs> um, you know, it, yeah. what I, I think one of the other powerful things that I did um, is I actually connected with two mums that uh, – I didn't know well at all um, and they were via a friend of a friend and both had had children that were treated with leukaemia many, many years ago and I, and I connected with them and they they shared with me some of the bizarre kind of behaviours that they experienced within themselves, you know, around that period of time um, and that was they were some of the best conversations that I had because we as mothers were doing some really kind of weird weird things. You know, one of them said to me as a mum, she returned her child to school um, and the school teacher said today we're doing swimming and he was, you know, a little fella, kind of five or six, mm. and she had a kind of screaming meltdown at the teacher in the playground and said, my son is not going to swimming. Do you think you're going to drown him? I've just spent six months keeping him alive. You're not, he's not going to swim. I'm not signing the note. And then like literally ran to her car and realised what she'd done. Um, but mm. that, that sense of I need to have control over this situation, I have to continue to protect him, um, you know, is, is all-encompassing. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, Again, that line with a cub. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And 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 your and your vision to share a story in eight seasons. I know that um, you know if it's all about timing, isn't it? Life is about timing and who comes in and when you engage and what you learn in that time. When we choose to engage, we have a different lens on. And I know that um, I've often at the right timing given your shared story, your book, Eight Seasons to some, you know, some parents and they have found great comfort and some have asked if they could reach out to you um, and I know that they have. So um, I do think that that's, again, another avenue that um, that, can, that, that can give strength. Yeah, definitely. I can't change the circumstances but can give strength. Can't change the circumstances. I think that, um, you know, essentially what I would say kind of in response to that is, this journey that that this kind of cancer journey is something that changes your worldview. Um, I think mm. you know prior to cancer, you, you have a particular worldview about the way that things operate in the world, um, and and mine was very much one that um, you know children are meant to outlive their parents. You know that was that was yes. part of my worldview, and what this what this process does or this journey does is really turns that upside down um, and, mm. and the realisation that 
bad things happen to good people, you, you know. Um, it is yeah. very kind of challenging. Um, and and the, I think that this is such a process and such a journey that you, you start to, res, you know, almost revise that kind of assumptive worldview that you have. Um, and what the nice thing about it is that, that there's often growth you know, as a result mm-hmm. of that and that struggle with really kind of highly challenging kind of life circumstances, um, you know, often there is, I guess, there comes a change in a, in perception of ourselves. Um, mm. Like I said earlier, I think I'm more vulnerable than what I thought, but I'm way more stronger perhaps than I ever mm. imagined. Um, and I've realised the world is much more unpredictable than I thought. Um, yeah. And I think what cancer has taught me is that I now appreciate and accept things perhaps as they are um, mm. rather than perhaps longing for them to be an, an, a, the way they were or, or another way. Um, mm-hmm. And cancer has taught me to very much, I, I guess, live in the moment. Um, and I've realised that because that's really all we have. Um, we've got this this one moment we don't know what's around the corner we don't know Mm. what's coming and there's this great kind of beauty for me in just being in the moment and and enjoying that moment and recognizing that for for what it is Um, you know now I can I can do things like I, I will look at Talia graduating from year 12 and I watch her on the netball court and I watch her just doing everyday things and I take such I delight simply from the fact that she is, you know, alive and standing in front of me and just doing everyday, everyday things. Um, And I think that's one of, you know, one of those big kind of takeaway golden nuggets, you you know, is to really just live every day, you know, and, and, and find, you know, the, whatever the wisdom is in that moment and whatever the joy is, you know, in that moment is is that's really all we have. Um, yeah, that's what, that's one of my that's a, nuggets. I love that. That's a beautiful nugget, Sandra. And, you know, one that I remember, I remember that many years ago when Talia would have probably been five or maybe six and uh, she would have been six, I think, and you returned to the village and um, she was smiling and a little hair had started growing back and 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 there was there was such a connection between the two of you and just this absolute um, surrounding love and warmth that you both shared. And I guess that golden nugget that you've just shared with, with us here, you started living that possibly way back then of recognizing the value in a moment and just taking each day and finding that silver lining in that moment um you know I'm sure you had a lot of bleak moments as well but you shifted it and you always created in a bleak moment a moment of connection a moment of beauty and it's it's that's such a golden nugget to share with everybody and you know I think I'm you know, very fortunate, you know, yes. as awful as this journey has been and as frightening and, the, and that several times we almost lost her through this journey. But, wow, you know, what a perspective to be left with where, you know, you, 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 it is, it's a constant reminder. It never 
leads kind of my thinking and you're right it has become part of the way that we live our lives now is is very much valuing um you know what's before us and finding you know and then the cliche terms but you know finding kind of gratitude in 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 what you can um and realizing you know that the good and the bad is life and 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 this is what it is um an acceptance of that an acceptance of that yeah they're, they're beautiful golden nuggets, you know. I've written down here and I, I always love, I love this part of, of the opportunity that I'm given as a support worker with the organisation to engage with people like yourself because we've all got something to learn. And, you know, in hearing these stories shared, you know, with just what you've shared here today, you know, the importance of establishing a good relationships you know, how you people that you trust, people that give comfort, people who are the solid ground that they're your go-tos, your GP, you know, your nurse who did. So all throughout that pathway in life, you found for yourself someone who you felt confidence, who you, you know, those foundations that we all need, that sense of belonging, that sense of safety. So having those conversations, getting yourself a good network of people that you can rely on and then also finding those um, silver lining in a day, no matter how little it may be. But the the gratitude, um, a lot of people write gratitude journals or they're invited to participate in writing a gratitude journal and, and you know, you've created a book that has given such comfort to so many and to just take a moment and just find something that you can be grateful for because there is always something in each moment that we can be grateful for. Absolutely. And sometimes I think it's not even about, you know, you don't, we don't even have to work as hard as finding silver linings. Sometimes it's just no. about accepting what is. And, and, and if that is an uncomfortable emotion or, you know, a, a positive emotion, it's actually just sitting with it and realising all these little moments are are actually, you know, this, this is life, all of these little moments. So each moment, whether it's, you know, uncomfortable or comfortable, can be experienced, um, you know, with that same kind of, and I think, you know, sometimes it's about the perspective. It's about experiencing those moments with that perspective of, this is life, you know, and there, there are good and there is bad. Um, but it's being able to have that perspective and and and, and I guess realise that bigger picture. That's lovely, Sandra. I'm so pleased that you've been able to just give an insight to who you are and share an insight to, you know, your, your story with your beautiful girl, Talia. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to interview a couple of people who are then the 35 who were diagnosed at 14 and I know that well I hope that you and Talia find enjoyment in hearing their stories as well so um, would you mind sharing you know with everybody what your um, top three two golden nuggets would be uh, for for the listeners here today I think my top one is you know it, it's the stuff that we have just been talking about which is you know really being able to um take that bigger picture perspective um, and live in the moment and, you know, in, enjoy that moment, you know, as much as as possible. Um, 
I want to say something kind of around, you you know, that reaching for help, like not not kind of suffering Mm. in silence, but kind of reaching out and and seeking, you know, those support networks that work for you, um, not kind of trying to go it alone and realizing that you actually aren't alone. That there is a there are a lot of people that can kind of support you. You know, they might not be able to you know, go through the journey for you, but they can kind of stand on the sidelines and hold your hand and walk with you as you go. There are plenty of those people. Um, That's lovely. Thank you, Sandra. That was wonderful. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this episode today. We hope that you've found it helpful in some way. And if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to call 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.